Good evening. I'm Alan Carey, Director of Sphere Education Initiatives, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's webinar. Our topic tonight is Challenging Classroom Conversations, Capital Punishment. We'll be taking a look at some of the interesting debates and conversations in favor and opposed to thinking about capital punishment and the role that it plays in criminal justice here in the United States. Tonight, I'm very excited to be joined by some fantastic colleagues and some real fantastic experts. And I'm very excited to have so many of you joining us. I wanted to talk just a real quick, both about our topic and then the conversation tonight, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. So like I said, tonight, we're gonna to be talking about capital punishment. This is the first in our series of what we're talking about as challenging classroom conversations. The underlying idea is how do we talk about the kinds of unique challenges and opportunities when it comes to topics like capital punishment, things that are difficult to bring up in the classroom, but important to think about from a wide variety of ideological perspectives. So tonight for our conversation, I would encourage you as always to join us in the chat, put your questions in there. They'll make up a big part of how we tackle the conversation this evening. Uh, and then what I wanted to do is make sure we get to those, but First, if you haven't already, please make sure that your name shows up in the chat function as what you registered underneath. Every now and then, you know how it can be. Uh, if you've got your name set up there in the participant function the correct way, we can make sure to get you your professional development certificate afterwards. With that, let me introduce our speakers for tonight's conversation. First, I'm very pleased to be joined by John G. Malcolm, who oversees the Heritage Foundation's work to increase understanding of the Constitution and the rule of law as Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government director of the think tank's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and the Ed Gilbertson and Sherry Lindbergh Gilbertson Senior Legal Fellow. Joining John tonight is Demetrius Minor from Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty, who educates and mobilizes conservatives around the systemic flaws with the death penalty. He's a preacher, advocate, relationship builder, and writer who brings a strong track record of building bridges and winning campaigns. He's been the director of coalitions in Florida for Americans for Prosperity, where he worked in partnership with the NAACP, Urban League, and others to build bipartisan support and pass legislation. Finally, I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague at the Cato Institute, Clark Neely. He's the senior vice president for legal studies. His areas of interest include constitutional law, overcriminalization, coercive plea bargaining, police accountability, and gun rights. Before joining Cato in 2017, Neely was a senior attorney and constitutional litigator at the Institute for Justice and director of the Institute Center for Judicial Engagement. Gentlemen, thank you all so much for joining us tonight. What I wanted to do is take just a few minutes uh, and have each of you share some opening remarks, talk a little bit about your position on capital punishment, some of the major areas that you anticipate being points in favor of concerns to consider when it comes to capital punishment. Uh, to get us kicked off, uh, John, please take us away. Okay, let me unmute myself. Uh, let me say that it's a pleasure to be with all of you and particularly with, with Clark and Demetrius to talk about the very timely and controversial topic. Uh, I wanna begin my brief introductory remarks by clarifying what my goal is and what it is not. Uh, I wanna state at the outset that my goal is not to persuade you that the death penalty is a good thing if you are an opponent of the death penalty. I realize that some, if not many, or perhaps most of you uh, think that the death penalty is bad for religious reasons or moral reasons, or because perhaps you think it's too expensive or ineffective. And if that is your belief, that is fine. I respect that. Uh, my more limited goal is to convince you that the death penalty is constitutional and that a rational, a rational, reasonable person 
can support the death penalty. Uh, as you all know, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and all judges and public officials swear an oath to uphold it. So one basic question that is uh, academics I think you should care about is, is the death penalty constitutional? And I think the clear answer to that question is yes. Indeed, the Constitution explicitly references the death penalty in several places. The Fifth Amendment provides that, quote, no person shall be held to answer for a capital crime unless indicted by a grand jury. The Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause provides that a person cannot twice be put in jeopardy of life or limb for the same offense. And the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments provides that a person cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Thereby, if due process is provided, a person may be deprived of their life. And while the Supreme Court has held that the death penalty cannot be imposed under certain circumstances, such as if the offender is a juvenile or is mentally disabled, the Supreme Court has, time, has held time and time again that the punishment of death for the crime of murder does not, under all circumstances, violate the Constitution, and that one has to consider the nexus between the crime committed and the punishment, not just the nature of the punishment itself in evaluating its constitutionality. Once it is established that the death penalty is constitutional, then we proceed to how these decisions get made. Reasonable people can and do disagree over whether we should have a death penalty. But in this country, disputes about appropriate sentencing are normally resolved through the legislative process. Despite all the obstacles, and there have been many that have been thrown in the way of death penalty supporters, 27 states still retain the death penalty, and there are 41 federal statutes that carry the potential for the death penalty. Moreover, the death penalty remains popular. 55% of Americans support the death penalty, and that number has held steady now for several years, and another 3% are undecided. Moreover, more people believe that the death penalty is not imposed often enough than believe that the death penalty is imposed too often. Now, while this 55% is much lower than the 80% support that the death penalty had in 1994, it is much higher than the 42% that it enjoyed in 1966. This is actually amazing, this popularity, considering how rarely the death penalty is carried out and all the delays and costs that are involved. The fact that the death penalty is rarely imposed is not in and of itself surprising. The ultimate penalty should be reserved for the worst of the worst. But if a state decides that there are some particularly heinous crime where the death penalty is the only fitting punishment, and if a jury decides that someone like Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber who killed 168 people and injured over 800 people, or Kenneth Allen McDuff, a serial murderer who brutally raped, uh, he raped, brutally tortured, and murdered many women in the 1980s and 1990s, and who subsequently said, quote, killing a woman's like killing a chicken. They both squawk. If a jury decides that people like this deserve to die for the crimes that they have committed, that strikes me as being an eminently reasonable thing to do. John, thank you much for those introductory remarks. I want to turn it next over to Demetrius. Demetrius, please share with us a little bit more about your perspective. 
Well, good evening, everyone. And um, I'm, I'm thankful to, um, to be a part of this important webinar. And I also want to uh, acknowledge my peers who are um, on this panel with me tonight. And I want to thank them for the work that they do as well. Uh, my name is Demetrius Miner. I do reside in Tampa, Florida. I'm the national manager for conservatives concerned about the death penalty. Uh, I oppose the death penalty uh, for many reasons, um, but the first time I came to oppose, um, or I guess that's to say the genesis of my, my journey of opposing the death penalty um, came in roughly 2010, I want to say. It was a casual conversation with my pastor at the time, and uh, I, I'm not quite sure how we got on the topic of the death penalty, but um, he simply said that um, he thought it was uh, impossible to be pro-life and simultaneously pro-death. Um, that began um, the journey of me reevaluating where I stood. At that time, I felt as a default position, I supported the death penalty, but I couldn't really give you a concrete reason why. And um, being a pro-life conservative, being a, a Bible-believing Christian, um, I personally found it um, to be antagonistic um, towards my values and my principles. And then I became um, opposed to the death penalty um, from a fiscal perspective. Um, it, it definitely costs more um, to um, sentence someone to death than it does for someone to be imprisonment, imprisoned with a sentence of life without parole. And just um, what we spend on the death penalty. And if we could uh, have those funds reallocated towards things such as uh, mental health services, um, trauma-informed trauma -informed systems and services for victims and their families and survivors, and training resources for law enforcement, um, I think we will um, begin to see uh, our society pivot towards um, more towards violent prevention and um, making sure that those needs are met before someone uh, is faced with uh, a death uh, a death penalty sentence. And then most importantly, as, as a small and limited uh, government conservative, um, I see death penalty as the height of big government. Um, I, I don't trust government to give me accurate COVID numbers. I don't trust government to deliver my mail on time, especially during the holiday season. Why would I, and I say this with no hyperbole or exaggeration, why would I trust the government with my life? Um, we've gotten it wrong once. Uh, we've gotten it wrong more than once, but one time is one time too many. And thus, uh, that is the reason uh, why I, I do not see capital punishment um, as a sentence fit for um, the United States. Demetrius, thank you so much for those welcome uh, opening remarks. Clark, I wanted to turn it over to you. Uh, please tell us a little bit more about where you stand on the issue. Well, thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here with Demetrius and, and John. Um, I'm going to start by saying that I agree with my friend John um, on his two uh, basic points, which is that the Constitution, properly understood, certainly does contemplate um, 
capital punishment as a legitimate punishment. Second, I do believe that a rational person uh, could support the death penalty in principle. Um, and I could well imagine, um, I, you know, I have a family, I could well imagine something being done to one of my children that I would uh, believe that the appropriate uh, punishment for that person would be death. And I have to be very honest about that. I'm going to ask um, a somewhat different question. In fact, three questions, and they are the following. First, um, would you entrust our system, the system that we have, the real system that, 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 uh, that we operate with the power to take human life? Second, uh, and the answer to that one, by the way, is absolutely not. You would not. Second, um, is it, is, can you make a strong argument that, that there should be special procedures that are required um, in capital cases that are not currently provided? And I think the answer to that is clearly yes. And then third, um, what might a system, what additional features might our system need in order to have uh, sort of the moral, empirical, and political legitimacy to, to wield this ultimate punishment? So I'll start with the first one. Would you entrust our system with the power to take life? And as I said before, I think the answer to that is emphatically no. Uh, and there are any number of reasons why that is, but um, just a few of them that I'll start with, and we can elaborate on these as the evening goes on, um, is that the system, our system, uh, oftentimes approaches capital cases in a completely unserious way. So, for example, there's a constitutional requirement in most criminal prosecutions that the defendant have counsel. Now, you might think that that would entail effective counsel, counsel that has time to work on the case, that knows what they're doing, perhaps that's even litigated a capital case before, and absolutely not. None of that is required. You can have an overworked, underexperienced uh, defense counsel that will be considered uh, perfectly adequate to defend somebody in a capital case. And I think that is self-evidently uh, problematic. Um, second, um, when we see uh, uh, cases involving capital charges where there has been a conviction um, unravel later, so the, the defendant is ultimately exonerated, um, Oftentimes what we see is that the mistakes that were made are just jaw-droppingly uh, problematic. It's not like a, a plane crashes and you have to reassemble it to try to figure out what happened. No, instead, it's like they put a, a pilot in the cockpit who'd never flown that plane before and then just drove it right in the ground because they didn't know how it worked. Uh, and so I think that the system takes a completely unserious approach uh, to try to figure out why a case went wrong when there's been an exoneration and try to fix that problem. Um, and then third and finally, um, there are hardly ever any consequences for prosecutors who uh, engage in even the most appalling misconduct in the course of a capital case. Um, and don't take my word for it, just uh, Google prosecutorial misconduct in death penalty cases as I did this morning and you'll see a plethora uh, of findings. I'm just gonna read you one passage from a 2009 article of, uh, of that title, Prosecutorial Misconduct in Death Penalty Cases. In the introduction, the authors say, our research reveals that even in the most egregious case in which prosecutorial misconduct led to the reversal of a death sentence in California, the prosecutor has never been publicly disciplined. Further, we identified the prosecutors in six out of eight death penalty cases that were reversed for prosecutorial misconduct. Five have no public record of discipline, and one of them is a sitting judge. This is blatant prosecutorial misconduct, in cases where a false conviction has been obtained, putting somebody uh, on death row, and the system responds with a complete lack of seriousness. And that's not exceptional, it's routine. 
Finally, uh, the third question uh, I posed was, um, I'm sorry, the second question um, is whether special procedures may be required for death penalty cases. I think you can actually make a pretty strong constitutional case that they are. Um, the Supreme Court has actually distinguished, for example, uh, a variety of different criminal prosecutions. So for example, if you are being criminally prosecuted, but there is no possibility of a jail sentence, um, just let's say a monetary fine, you're actually not constitutionally entitled, according to the Supreme Court, to an attorney. If you're being prosecuted for what the Supreme Court has called a petty crime, which generally involves six months or less of incarceration, you're not entitled to a jury. I think that's blatantly wrong. We can put that to one side, but the, that's what the Supreme Court has said. So we do have this track record on the part of the Supreme Court of, of, um, of finding that there are different requirements depending on the seriousness uh, of what's at stake. And I think that we should have much more rigorous procedures in death penalty cases. And I think you can make a reasonably strong argument that the constitution in fact requires that. Um, third and finally, uh, I, I posited the question, what would it take to transform our system from one that has no business imposing the death penalty to one that might have some business imposing the death penalty? And I'll just list three things. Um, first, as I suggested earlier, a more serious commitment to providing effective defense counsel and defense resources to capital defendants. Second, the implementation of mandatory sentinel review process. That's uh, very familiar in uh, medical malpractice, which I used to defend as a young lawyer, also in commercial aviation. When you have an intolerable outcome like a plane crash, you engage in this process called a sentinel incident review to try to figure out what happened, why, and how to eliminate that problem going forward. That almost never happens in our criminal justice system, even when there's been a false conviction in a capital case, that should be mandatory. And then third, finally, um, there should be prosecutorial accountability, significant prosecutorial accountability, I would say up to and including a jail sentence for prosecutors that engage in misconduct uh, in um, uh, capital cases in particular. Again, that's almost unheard of in our system. It should be routine. Looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Mark, thanks so much. Uh, fantastic opening remarks. Really excited about the, the diversity of perspectives we have here. Already getting a lot of questions in, but where I wanted to start before jumping into some of the ones that I, I've prepared for our conversation is to give each of you a chance to respond to some of the points that your uh, colleagues here in the conversation tonight raised. John, uh, why don't I turn it to you first? Any any responses that you would like to oh, make here at the beginning? Yeah, I have plenty, but I'll try to keep it. Uh, I'll try to keep it short. I, again, I respect Demetrius and his and his religious views and those of his pastor. Uh, I have taught there are, of course, plenty of religious leaders who who are, are perfectly fine with the death penalty and who would say that it is innocent life that should not be taken, and that is not the case with respect to uh, capital cases. And and one thing, let's just get clear at the outset. Uh, the cases that we're talking about, even those with exonerations, which I'm happy to get into, the overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority, if not everybody, sitting on death row, they did it. Uh, you know, Clark talks about incompetent counsel. Uh, you know, before the Supreme, in the what I'll refer to as the old era, before the Supreme Court caught a, put a pause on capital cases in 1974, uh, there certainly were all sorts of egregious uh, errors, and they did not get the scrutiny that they deserve. And if you were to tell me that there were innocent people that were put to death at that time, you know, it would not surprise me. Since the Supreme Court has you know, implemented the death penalty again in 1976, uh, you know, virtually every capital case uh, gets, quote unquote, learned counsel. There are no shortage of lawyers out there who are death penalty opponents, this is what they devote their life to, 
who are volunteering on these cases and conducting investigations up, up to the moment of execution, sometimes even when the client wants to give up and wishes to be executed. Uh, uh, there are problems in our criminal justice system. The odds of an innocent person uh, languishing in jail for a non-capital offense is much, much higher than the odds of an innocent person uh, sitting on death row. I fully applaud the people who work at the Innocence Project with improvements in DNA, uh, you know, but if there's any colorable claim of innocence, the odds are infinitesimally high that that will either be uncovered or a governor or a parole board will commute that sentence or outright pardon the individual before an execution uh, takes place. I agree with Clark, uh, however, that there have been uh, and there are prosecutors who engage in prosecutorial misconduct and there should certainly be consequences for that. And I guess the final point uh, that I would say is that Demetrio said, well, we know an innocent, innocent person has been killed. I don't know who he is referring to. Sort of the holy grail for death penalty opponents these days is to find somebody who was innocent, who has been killed. I don't think they've done that. There are a couple of cases that are troublesome where I'm not prepared to say that it didn't happen, but they certainly have never definitively proven that it did happen. But I will concede the death penalty is a human endeavor. And you know, human endeavors have risk involved. I've already talked about the myriad levels of appeal uh, that, that capital cases get from very competent counsel, often volunteer counsel who devote their lives to this sort of thing. But I would point out you know, the death penalty, like all other endeavors, including everything in our criminal justice system, is a, is a risk reward enterprise. And we, in fact, because we think the benefits outweigh the costs, make decisions all the time that we know for a fact is going to result in innocent life being lost. If you raise the speed limit on a highway, if you delegitimize or, uh, or um, uh, legalize marijuana, uh, and people are going to smoke marijuana, sometimes drink too and go on the roadways, there are more car crashes, innocent people will die. But a decision is made that the benefits of engaging in this kind of activity outweigh the cost. And when innocent people die under any circumstance, it's a tragedy, but it happens. Thanks, John. Uh, Demetrius, I want to give you a chance to respond next. Uh, thank you, Alan. Um, thank you, um, John, for your remarks, um, albeit pretty interesting. Listen, the death penalty is the only punishment. And I, I want those who are tuned in from, from all over the, the world here to, to listen to this. The death penalty is the only punishment in our current criminal justice model, current or past, that is irreversible. Meaning that if we get it wrong, there is no, oops, let's go back and fix it. The, the life is gone. The, the deed is done. You, you, can't, you cannot undo it. I, I think that fact alone, uh, 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 that fact, by itself should give us calls to pause when it comes to capital punishment. I do want to refer, revert back to something that uh, Mr. Malcolm said and um, talking about the benefits of, of the death penalty and using his words, risk reward. I, I'm not quite sure what the reward is for society. Let's look at 
First of all, let's look at the people that are directly impacted by the death penalty. We'll look at the murder victim's family. I will not sit here and say that all murder victims' family are against the death penalty. Some are for, some are against. But because the death penalty is not an immediate sentence, we're talking about years of litigation, the fees that are accrued over a period of time for a new jury and a new trial. What we're witnessing is the recycling of pain, anguish, and trauma that the victim's family have to endure, that community has to endure, and the state that, 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 the, that the act occurred in has to endure. And when we're talking about the reward, I'm being presumptuous and thinking that my colleague is referring to justice being served. Some people may think that's the case, but it doesn't, it doesn't bring that life back. And so now another family has to go through pain and suffering because they've lost a brother, a husband, a son, a daughter. Along the, along the mix, someone is going um, to suffer. And so I also real quickly want to revert back to the term of heinous crimes. What's, what one person may consider heinous, another person may not consider. For, for example, I, I think there's a collective agreement that if someone was to break into the home of an elderly woman and, and murder her, that will be considered a heinous act. But what about the person who, let's just say, their child is kidnapped? And let's be optimistic here that that child is returned to um, her parents or her guardian or their guardians safely. I don't think that's people are going to consider that a heinous crime. But if you ask the family that's impacted by that, they're gonna they're gonna feel like that's a heinous crime. So I really feel that when we talk about heinous crimes, it's it's relatively subjective. And um, I, I think if we just look at the fact that the death penalty, A, is the only punishment, the only punishment that's irreversible. B, the death penalty does not serve as a deterrent to crime. C, the death penalty has a very negative impact on um, survivors and murder victims' family. And D, it is just a recycling of pain and trauma all over again that does not give a family or many families and communities closure. Uh, again, I, I think that this is um, uh, an act of our criminal justice system that needs to be eradicated. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Demetrius. Uh, Clark, I want to give you a chance to respond as well, but then I also want to frame the next question to, to move the conversation forward. So uh, in addition to responding, I wonder if you might answer a little bit to the, the point of some of the questions we've started to get in in the chat, uh, which all get at the underlying question of why do we have a death penalty? That is, taking a look at how we arrived here through uh, history of laws preceding the country and the current state of where we are. What what are the sort of ends achieved by a death penalty that makes it uh, arguable for some that we ought to have it? So uh, two questions then, uh, responses to John and Demetrius, and two, take us into a little bit of the history of how we got where we are. 
Yeah, that's great. Those are important questions, and I will certainly address them. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest disagreement between, between myself and John is over the following question. Um, does this, is, is our system sufficiently committed to doing a good job in death penalty cases, and, and does it actually effectively do a good job? I think John is fairly confident that it does, and I'm fairly confident that it does not. I want to drive home my point by, by telling you two stories from my home state of Texas, one that was just in the news this week and one that was um, a more uh, uh, less recent vintage. The one that was in news this week, which I encourage all of you to take a look at, is a case called Escobar. This is a death penalty case in Texas um, where I'm going to give you the really short version, and that is that uh, a man was convicted, sentenced to death. Um, and then during uh, post-conviction litigation, it became uh, increasingly clear that there were extraordinarily um, serious problems with the laboratory work uh, that had been done um, that, and upon which uh, uh, the, was the primary prosecution um, uh, basis for, for the conviction. And it was so bad, and you hardly ever see this, it was so bad that the state, the prosecutors themselves, um, uh, filed paperwork in court saying that they thought that Mr. Escobar was entitled to a new trial because of the problems in the trial court. This went up to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest court in the state of Texas uh, for criminal cases, including death penalty cases. And the court denied the motion for a new trial and never even mentioned that the state itself had supported that request. Just tried to slide that past um, and uh, it had to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, without any opinion, unanimously issued an order on Monday saying, yeah, that's not how it works. Um, this guy gets a new trial. So that's an example, um, as far as I'm concerned, of the complete lack of seriousness uh, with which the system often handles these cases. And uh, it's very unusual for the U.S. Supreme Court to get involved, as John uh, will acknowledge. And that, that um, I think it makes us plausible for us to wonder how often does that kind of thing happen where a state court has been that totally unserious and the U.S. Supreme Court isn't there uh, to catch the ball? The second illustration is the prosecution of a man in Texas named Michael Morton. He was uh, charged with beating his wife to death uh, and convicted and sentenced to 25 years. He narrowly avoided the death penalty. This case is interesting because it features the most severe punishment that has ever been inflicted on an American prosecutor for misconduct during uh, a murder trial or any other trial. Prosecutor was a man named Ken Anderson, who engaged in criminal contempt of court by suppressing exculpatory evidence um, in the Michael Morton trial. Um, it took 25 years for this to be uncovered. It was finally proven in court that Ken Anderson, as the prosecutor, had suppressed um, exculpatory evidence in violation, direct violation of a, of a court order, and he was then sentenced to jail. The most severe punishment ever meted out to a U.S. prosecutor. Now, ask yourself this question. Uh, this prosecutor's deliberate misconduct cost a man 25 years of his life, effectively orphaned his surviving son, um, and uh, created a situation in which the real killer was not caught until he'd killed again at least once, maybe twice. What do you think would be an appropriate punishment for this prosecutor? What severity of punishment would a system that is serious about accountability impose on the prosecutor? Think about that for a moment, and then I'll tell you what he got. This is what he got. Not years, not months, not weeks, but days five days in jail for this prosecutor who engaged in that conduct. That, to me, is the system on a plate. That's how much accountability the system is prepared to impose upon its own actors when they engage in criminal misconduct to secure a false conviction. Uh, and again, I just don't think that's a system that can remotely be entrusted uh, with the power to take 
life. Now, the question is, why do we have the death penalty? And I couldn't presume to speak. Uh, John, I absolutely agree with John in his recitation of the statistics. I think that there is a very powerful and primal uh, drive that many people have in a sense that justice in some cases requires the taking of a human life. Uh, and I also think that is a um, it, it is a reasonable position for people to have. I might aspire myself to have a different position. I'm not sure I do. As I acknowledged uh, early on, it, you know, I could imagine somebody doing something so horrible to one of my children that I might believe that the only appropriate response would be the death penalty. Um, so I do think that it it flows from a sense of, of of a desire for justice and a reasonable difference of view among reasonable people about what constitutes justice in a given case, and that there may be some cases that are so horrific and so egregious that the only appropriate response is to take the life of the perpetrator. I'm not endorsing that view. I'm simply saying that neither can I discount it. Thanks, Clark. John, I wanted to uh, turn the, the similar question to you and add an additional caveat to it. Often uh, the conversation around capital punishment considers things like the role that deterrence plays. That is, if there is an ultimate punishment in place for particularly awful crimes, murder, rape, some of the things that sometimes currently lead to the death penalty in some parts of the country, that it will have an effect of deterring would-be criminals. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit to the extent that that, that seems to be a compelling argument or where you may come down on the question. Sure. Well, there are actually three legitimate penological objectives. Two of them involve deterrence. Uh, so let me mention briefly what those uh, are. I'll, I'll say at the outset, there were two things that Demetrius said that I agreed with. One is that the death penalty, once it's carried out, is certainly irreversible, and that also the death penalty cannot bring back the victim. Uh, the reason why I mentioned the, sec the, the second one is that one of the uh, legitimate penological objectives is retribution. And I don't think retribution is a bad word. Uh, the overwhelming majority of victims' families want to see that penalty carried out. There will be some who will have the same religious objections, perhaps, that Demetrius does. But the overwhelming uh, number of victims' families say that they have a sense of closure that the person who killed their loved one uh, is not going to be alive to kill again. That is an outlet. It's not going to bring the victim back, but it is meant to restore the social order as best it can be restored uh, in light of the heinous crime that was committed. And frankly, if you end up having a lot of people who think that people, the phrase, get away with murder uh, often enough, that is going to lead to a lack of respect for the rule of law, and in extreme cases can even lead to vigilante justice. Now, the other two, uh, uh, legitimate penological goals. There is general deterrence and there is specific deterrence. General deterrence is what you were talking about, which is it's the message that gets sent out to people that says, don't go and commit this heinous crime because if you do, the death penalty might be imposed upon you. Now, there, are, there were several studies back in the 70s and 80s that said that it, it was a very, very clear deterrence effect. In fact, one study out of Emory, and there were similar studies that, that held the same, that for every time there's an execution that takes place, there are 18 murders that don't take place. Now, I will be the first to concede. These are very, very old studies, and the situation on the ground has changed dramatically. So in 2012, the National Research Council evaluated literally every study that had been done on the death penalty since 1976, 
And they came to the conclusion that there was no con conclusive support either for or against the death penalty uh, as a deterrent. But I would, I would say this, look, we know that there are gonna be some people who are not going to be deterred, people who are mentally ill or responding to a crime of passion. Uh, but you know, generally we take into account in our day-to-day -day lives and when we're thinking about doing something wrong, the potential risks that we might undergo if we are caught doing that activity. We do that kind of thing all the time. And it strikes me as being completely counterintuitive that the thing which we fear the most, which is death, would not be on the minds of some rational people who are thinking about committing a heinous crime. And I can give you an example. So in 2011, a guy from British Columbia named Dmitry Smirnov put a GPS device on his girlfriend's car and tracked her to where he thought she was going to go, which was to Illinois, and went to a parking lot, and then he blew her brains out. When he was interviewed, he said, look, I did a lot of research, and I committed this crime in Illinois because I had to learn that Illinois had you know, gotten away with the death penalty. Now, it is not surprising that the death penalty has lost a lot of its deterrent value. In 1985, the average time between time a death sentence was imposed and the time it was carried out was under six years. It is now 20 years. Last year, it was 22 years. In some cases, it is 30 years. In California, there are currently 692 people on death row. California has only executed 13 people since 1976 and none since 2006. Despite this, California voters approved a referendum. They rejected one referendum to do away with the death penalty. They approved of another, another referendum to speed up the death penalty. And even though he had said he was going to abide by what the voters wanted to do, Gavin Newsom decided he was going to declare a moratorium uh, on the death penalty. The Biden administration has done the same thing. They have been, quote unquote, studying the issue uh, for the last uh, two years. Uh, my belief is that if, if things were speeded up, if this kind of thing happened more regularly, that it's all very high degree of likelihood it would have more of a general deterrence effect. Specific deterrence. Specific deterrence is specific to the defendant. It says if this person is executed, they are not going to be alive to kill again. I mentioned in my introductory remarks, Kenneth Allen McDuff. Kenneth Allen McDuff was committed, uh, was sentenced to death uh, for a brutal rape and murder of, uh, of a woman and two guys who were uh, accompanying uh, her. They killed the boy, the two guys first, and then, and then did what he did to Edna Sullivan. He got the death penalty. In 1974, the Supreme Court invalidated all existing death penalties at that time. He was subsequently released in, uh, from prison uh, because of overcrowding, and he killed over a dozen people. <laughs> he was then given another uh, death penalty uh, sentence, and that was ultimately carried out. I could give you lots of examples. Every year, there are guards who are killed uh, by inmates. There's prison-on-prison -prison violence with uh, prisoners uh, killing other prisoners because they, they say, well, I have no, you know, it's, they can't do anything more to me. They've already sentenced me to life. I'll give you uh, an example. And so just a couple of years ago, a guy named Jonathan Watson confessed to beating two inmates who were both convicted pedophiles. Pedophiles are not liked by prisoners. Snitches and pedophiles are the two groups of people that prisoners do not like. Watson was already serving a life sentence for a murder that he committed. And he said, quote, I figured I'd do everybody a favor. 
Being a lifer, I'm in a unique position where I sometimes have access to these people and I have so little to lose. That happens. You know, prisons, you try to keep them safe, but these are violent people. And so it's specific deterrence is if somebody like that gets a death penalty and it's carried out, other prisoners and guards can breathe a little easier, not to mention those who escape or are on work furloughs who go on to commit additional murders. So we are uh, down to about 20 minutes left in our conversation. So I want to pivot to some of the questions that are coming in from the audience. Uh, and I'll ask that we move through through a few of these relatively quickly. Uh, but let me pose the first one to you, Demetrius. One of the questions that came up in the chat, it is from Doreen Stringer, asks about the relationship between capital punishment and the Constitution's provision around uh, bans of cruel and unusual punishment. So one of the one of the places where the argument often comes up around the constitutionality of uh, capital punishment is, is it perhaps, I think, given the argument that John and Clark made in an original understanding of where things came from, uh, it was not a cruel and unusual punishment. Have times changed? Is it such now that we ought to view capital punishment as a kind of cruel and unusual punishment? Uh, thank you for the question. I, I definitely would say yes. And I would say that um, because of the history of, of botched executions um, that have gone on in the United States, uh, particularly in the state of of Oklahoma, who's had it um, probably more frequently uh, than any other state, with um, the lack of transparency um, that has um, encountered with um, the lethal injections that are used, the drugs that are used, um, the people are not aware of how, uh, many times, how these executions um, are gone out or, or sought after. So, um, I would say in the sense that it definitely is cruel and unusual punishment. We had just recently individuals in South Carolina um, who were advocating for firing squad uh, to be used as a means of execution. I, I would definitely consider that to be cruel and hum inhumane. Uh, John or Clark, quick responses? Yeah, Clark, you go ahead if you have a response. I definitely have a response to that. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, um, the question of, of what punishments violate the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual is a very challenging one that I think it probably won't surprise people to know that I think the Supreme Court has taken a fairly unserious approach to. Just to give you one example, um, it's I hate to really get into this. I'm not going to get into it very far because it's just so uh, grotesque to think about. But there are probably few ways of executing a human being that are more cruel, more gratuitously cruel than uh, the electric chair, which uh, was the was the mechanism that was most widely used for most of the 20th century. It's just a horrific, horrific way uh, to take a life. Um, and that was just fine uh, with the Supreme Court, um, notwithstanding the fact that there were plenty of other much more humane uh, ways of inflicting uh, the death penalty. So that's just one example. Um, one important question uh, that has uh, not been, I think, really well thought through by the Supreme Court is whether um, the Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishments uh, sort of necessarily uh, keeps up with uh, the times. So, for example, um, some punishments that were quite common um, at the founding era would have been uh, various kinds of physical branding and maiming, um, you know, slicing off an ear or cutting a scar into somebody's nose, things like that, um, to a high degree of certainty. And, and of course, various forms of corporal punishment, like just, you know, a, a severe beating. 
Um, notwithstanding the prevalence of those punishments back in the 18th century, I think it's pretty clear that those, at least some of those, would be considered cruel and unusual today, which strongly suggests that uh, the, the Eighth Amendment does keep up with the times. Um, I think you can make, if that's true, and perhaps it's not, John may disagree, but if it's true, uh, then I think you probably, um, the, the, the possibility that, um, in, in effect, you know, cultural mores um, have changed to the point uh, where there are so few countries or so few states that are imposing the death penalty that it really has become both cruel and unusual becomes a plausible argument. I'm not saying that we're there yet. We may be. I think you could make that argument. I don't think it's an especially strong one right now, but I could see that argument getting much stronger in the next 10 to 20 years, particularly if there were a movement among the states uh, to abandon the death penalty. And we ended up in a situation where there were only a handful of states that were still imposing death um, and particularly if they were using, uh, continuing to use some of these extraordinarily uh, brutal and draconian uh, means such as the electric chair. John, please. Well, I, yeah, I got to respond to the, the notion of box executions. The Supreme Court has in the past, although it's been many years ago, did refer to practices in other countries. I think that the, the framers of the Constitution at the time that the Eighth Amendment was ratified uh, would be shocked to think that since we had just fought a revolution against another nation so that we could establish our own mores, we'd be looking to how the, how the death penalty is carried out in other countries. Uh, but that's, you know, an, an originalist would never do that. I would also point out that the, the death penalty has been abolished in a number of European countries, and this ties into botched executions. I'll tell you how in a moment. Uh, even though in the countries in which it was abolished, the death penalty was overwhelmingly popular. The reason why the death penalty was abolished in those countries is not because each country took a vote. That decision was made in Brussels because the European Union and the bureaucrats at the European Union and the folks at the, organ the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, they decided that the death penalty was a bad thing. And they conditioned membership in the OECD and the European Union, which confers a lot of benefits. You could not be in the European Union or the OECD if you either had the death penalty or, and this is where it's gonna to get to botched executions, or if you sent drugs to the United States for the purpose of carrying out the death penalty. Death penalty opponents forced the last manufacturer of these drugs, Hospira, in 2009, to abandon making these drugs. The American Medical Association, the American Nurses Association, while they have no trouble with nurses and doctors uh, participating in physician-assisted suicide, have said that it is an ethical violation and you can lose your license if you participate in an execution. So what has happened as a result of that? The government, which wants to carry out executions, has to get their drugs manufactured from less reliable sources. And the execution end up being, being done by people who are not professionally trained healthcare providers who know how to administer these drugs. And Demetrius's point about saying, well, we can go back to a firing squad. Firing squad is clearly inhumane. It's not inhumane at all. It's quick. Look, taking any, the moment the state is executing anybody, it's a violent event and a person is going to stop breathing. There is no question about that. But there are no errors with a firing squad. It is quick, and there had been no botched firing uh, squad institution. There are other methods of carrying out the death penalty uh, too, but botched executions, and I know this is a controversial thing to say, but I think I have just supported it. They have increased in number 
precisely because responsible people have made sure that less trained people are going to be carrying out these executions with drugs from more questionable sources. And it's the death penalty opponents that have made that happen. Thank you, John. Uh, one of the things that came up in conversation that I, I would would love to hear one of you gentlemen elaborate on a little bit further is the idea that uh, the death penalty ends up being more expensive than life in prison, uh, which uh, it seems on its face almost counterintuitive. But I, if one of you gentlemen would, would jump in, I know Demetrius, you're familiar with some of these arguments, so perhaps you can take that one first. What is it about the current process that makes death penalty enforcement more expensive than, say, life in prison as an alternative? Thank you, Alan. Um, I, I want to um, present these numbers um, to the audience here. Uh, the state of California is currently spending $137 million per year uh, allocated towards the death penalty. Contrast that to life without parole is $115 million. State of Florida, where I reside, currently spends $51 million to carry out the death penalty. Contrast that towards um, $24 million for life without parole. Prior to Maryland repealing the death penalty, Maryland spent $186 million for five, literally a handful of executions. $186 million. So let me allow me to break down the cost. This is this is what it looks like. For every death penalty trial, the state will pay $1 million more than for a non-death penalty trial. Only a third of death penalty trials result in a death sentence. So that is $3 million a sentence and only one-tenth are executed. So that's $30 million in execution. From a fiscal conservative perspective, that is an atrocity. That is fiscal recklessness. And it begs the question of what our states will look like, what our justice system will model itself after, if we were to take a significant portion of those funds and have them reallocated towards services such as mental health services, such as violence prevention um, programs, such as healing services, trauma-informed services for victims and their families, and importantly, um, resources for our law enforcement to be properly equipped um, to do their jobs. So. Again, look at Maryland that repealed the death penalty, $186 million for just five executions. Uh, to me, that problem speaks volumes. I got something out of Clark, and I'll let Clark go first if he, if he doesn't. Go ahead, John. Uh, look, first of all, it's very, I, I said before that the used to be from time of imposition of sentence until the time of, of it was carried out, it was six years. Now it's over twenty. Uh, there are lots of there are lots of attorneys that file innumerable appeals. 
there are there are death penalty lawyers. I mean, so a few years ago, uh, there was a conference in Houston, and Kathy Scardino, who's known as the Clarence Darrow of death penalty lawyers in Texas, was asked, "What's the single most important thing that people could do to stop the death penalty?" And she said, uh, "Spend money." that'll get everybody's attention. And there's something very unseemly, one, not only about putting a price on justice, but also the death penalty opponents are using cost as a tactic uh, and basically saying, we can't persuade uh, the people that are with us, so we will bleed the system dry. And that is the only reason, for instance, that a state like Nebraska, the reddest of red states decided, okay, that's it, we're gonna give up on the death penalty. I, I did see, one question in the chat, which I'd like to respond to, because it just caught my eye as it was going by, because it's an argument that's frequently made, and it said, and it had a link that said, you know, here's the company that we're keeping with respect to uh, the death penalty, and I'm, there are certainly some draconian countries that still have the death penalty, but I would, I would point out, one, uh, that seven of the eight largest countries in the world, Japan, Thailand, India, Taiwan, Singapore, and South Korea, all have uh, the death penalty. There are lots of criminal laws in lots of countries that would be considered way too lax for us, particularly for juvenile murders. And the other thing I would say about that kind of an argument, and I'm not saying this to be incendiary, is that when you make that same kind of an argument by saying, look at the company that we're keeping in terms of people that have the same lax uh, abortion laws, pro-choice laws that a number of states do, there are only seven countries that permit abortion after uh, 20 weeks, and they include China, North Korea, and Vietnam. So there are different ways to play that game, but there are a lot of very, very sane democratic countries that still retain the death penalty. And as I say, most of those that have outlawed it did it because that decision was made in Brussels, not in those countries. Clark, go right ahead. I don't have a lot to add other than to say that I, you know, I credit uh, both Demetrius's numbers and his concerns, but it always makes me nervous when people raise this um, uh, you know, concern about the expense of the death penalty, because let, let me tell you, if there's one thing that the criminal justice system in this country is really good at, it's cutting costs. Uh, oh, we're spending too much on public defenders. Oh, we're giving people too many chances to appeal. We can fix that real easy. Uh, and they do. I mean, just to take one example, um, despite the fact that the only constitutionally prescribed mechanism for resolving criminal charges is a jury trial, those are expensive and they're inefficient and they're almost extinct on American soil. Um, in the federal system, 98.3% of all criminal convictions come not through constitutionally prescribed jury trials, uh, but through guilty pleas. And those guilty pleas are often the, the result of an extraordinarily coercive process. Uh, but that's an example um, of efficiency. Um, you know, if, if jury trials, I had a, a good friend of mine who's a former prosecutor uh, give me an estimate about the average cost of a, you know, a non-felony, uh, I'm sorry, a non-capital felony prosecution um, that included a jury trial. And he said that's going to be well over $100,000, maybe $200,000. Um, but if that ca same case is resolved through a guilty plea, you know, you might spend $10,000 on it. So if we're able to get um, convictions for 10 cents on the constitutional dollar uh, or less, uh, by coercing people into pleading guilty. And I'm not saying all guilty pleas are coerced, but we don't know how many. Um, uh, we know some are because uh, uh, there have been exonerations of people who falsely pled guilty to crimes we now know they didn't commit. There's only one way that can happen and that's coercion. Uh, but our system, as I suggested earlier, is extraordinarily good at cutting costs by cutting down on process. Uh, and I would not want to invite them to do that in capital cases. So as we come toward the end of our time together, I wanted to pose one last question to each of you. Uh, as you all know, our audience tonight are educators, teachers who are working with their students every day on how to handle and approach these challenging conversations. So my question for each of you is uh, twofold. 
One, uh, what are some of the most important things that you think students need to know when it comes to trying to think about challenging topics like capital punishment? And two, what advice do you have for them in having these kinds of challenging conversations in their classrooms? Uh, I'll throw it open. Whoever would like to take it first, uh, and we'll go from there. I'll take it. Go ahead, Demetrius. You, you go first. I, I revert to my elders. <laughs> Elders, not betters. Um, you know, I guess I, what I would say is I, I remember a, a few years ago, I went to a law school in, in Seattle and I did a debate with a, a criminal law professor about the death penalty. And I had people, I had students come up to me that said, you know, you just, you just said things that we had just never heard and in, in their criminal law or con law class. So I would just say, Obviously, when you're dealing with young kids and you're going to describe, and I think you need to describe, some of the horrific crimes that these people commit, like the ones I described about Kenneth Allen McDuff. And believe me, if I told you how he brutally tortured women, you would, you would get sick to your stomach. So you have to do this in an age-appropriate way, but do it in a balanced way and you know, trust them to eventually come to their own decisions. And you can present the constitutional arguments, the, you know, the, the pain to the victims and, and their family, the pain to the, the bad upbringing of a number of the people who commit these sorts of crimes and the pain that their families are going to feel. I mean, things about the criminal justice system are messy and they're tough and they're made by, individual, by individuals who are placed with the duty to do their best in these circumstances. So just play it straight. There were, I'll just close by saying that there were a lot of topics that we could have gotten to that we never did. Race, for instance, exonerations, all sorts of things. If you want to hear uh, you know, my side on these things, and, and, and I'm happy to present both sides of these things, please feel free to contact me at the Heritage Foundation. And, and I'm happy to have a conversation with you about it. And I would just say, lay this out in an intelligent, thoughtful manner that portrays both sides of the issue. Uh, thank you, John. I, I do want to um, echo um, what, what my colleague just so eloquently stated about trusting um, them to make a right informed decisions. Um, I, I'm highly convinced that we all should be students of history. It's gonna help guide us in the future. It's gonna help us make informed, rational decisions if, if, if we know the history um, behind whatever the subject um, area of interest is. When it comes to capital punishment, there's just a lot of history. There's the racial history, um, there's the cultural history. Um, when you talk, when you think about capital punishment, how um, it affects uh, us economically, and I'm not just talking about the cost of the death penalty, but, but those who are receiving the capital punishment sentence. Um, and those who may not have the economic means to uh, afford an attorney who can get them um, a lighter sentence. I think all that's important. But I also encourage um, embracing the voices of dissent because it will help. It will help you um, make informed opinions. It will help you become rooted and grounded in your in your principles, in your values, in your beliefs. And the bedrock of our country is free speech, is free thinking, and um, embracing um, dissenting voices only helps you grow, only helps you uh, adapt. 
only helps you become um, firmer and grounded in uh, principles and helps you become more aware and more educated. Um, so I definitely would encourage knowing history and again, embracing the voices around you that see things differently than you do. So I think that it's important, uh, perhaps the most important thing to convey to students is that there are two basic ways to respond to somebody who disagrees with you on a, on a fraught issue like the death penalty. Um, one is with disdain and the other is with respect. Disdain is an understandable reaction when somebody disagrees with you some, about something that is you know, so emotionally charged, but it's an extraordinarily ineffective way of changing people's minds. If you really want to change somebody's minds on an issue like the death penalty um, or gun ownership or abortion or any of these other um, really charged issues, a much more effective way is to engage with that person um, respectfully and to find out why it is that they believe what they believe so that you can address those points. They may, they may have some factual misunderstanding. It may turn out that some aspect of their logic is incorrect. And if you don't engage with respect, you won't be able to find out whether they, they you know, sort of embrace certain fundamental misconceptions that have led them to this disagreement. So uh, look, there are some issues I just will not engage with somebody on. If somebody thinks that slavery was not evil or if they think the Holocaust never happened, I'm just not going to engage on those points. It's not a discussion that I'm interested in having. Um, but things like the death penalty, um, the Second Amendment, so forth and so on, those are really big, important issues um, that bring a lot of baggage. But I think it's incredibly important for all of us, including students, to recognize the most effective way um, to bring somebody around to your point of view is not by expressing disdain for their point of view or for them as a person, but instead by engaging with them, by showing respect, and then leading them um, through reason um, to the possibility of, of changing their minds. Can I say one thing, Alan, very yes, quickly? please. And I'm aware of time. Um, I, I strongly believe that there's more that unites us than divides us. I believe that if we if we all try hard enough, we can find that common ground amongst one another. And though capital um, punishment is definitely uh, takes an emotional toll as you as we dig into the weeds of it, uh, I think if we just try to reach one one another, where where we're currently at. Uh, we can have a civil and must needed dialogue concerning it. Thank you. John Demetrius Clark, thank you so much for joining us for the conversation tonight. Greatly appreciated everything that you had to share. It's been fantastic to hear you talk about this challenging issue, but in a way that really brings to life our ability to talk about it, get at the core principles that inform our positions, but also do so in a way that models civil discourse and respect for those that you are engaging in conversation. Let me briefly note to our teachers joining us tonight, uh, for those of you who are here, we'll be sending out uh, professional development certificates soon, but also, and I think perhaps more importantly, our colleague Elise Alter has put together a fantastic lesson plan that incorporates many of the things that John and Demetrius actively referenced here uh, as resources for you to bring this conversation back to your classroom. So we'll be looking to send that out with a link to the recording of this event uh, sometime hopefully next week, but you'll see that all from us soon. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and it's been a pleasure to have you join us.